welcome back to uh, System and Disturbia, the podcast where sometimes family members get in the way. Is that a good open? It's pretty good and pretty accurate. My family is visiting me from Pennsylvania right now, and I kindly asked them to leave so we could record. Yeah, they took their sweet time. But you know what? My family would do the same. They would definitely stick around and take their sweet-ass time doing that. Pretty much how it went, so. But, you know, they're family. You can't, you can't. You can't really do anything yeah, about it. you can't hold it against you them. You can pick your friends, but. Can you pick your family's nose? Sure. <laughs> if you're on that level, I guess. Ew, gross. your grandma, you've got a booger. Gross. Uh, this is Brent. I'm Jonathan. What are you drinking tonight? You told me, but I Miller forget Light. already. Miller Light. Okay. I'm drinking and a PBR. I think I got you beat for once. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, PBR is kind of lowest rung. I don't know how it can get much worse than PBR. Except Milwaukee Best. Milwaukee's Best is maybe, like, the worst. That's what I meant. I mean, I was actually drinking something that was, like, a step up. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, usually I go the classy route, but uh, keeping a white trash tonight, so... So first, I, I meant to do this in the solo episode, but it totally slipped my mind. I did end up covering um, the one thing I forgot to talk about, like two episodes before that, was doc- which was documentation. But I meant to mention this last episode, and I didn't get to it. Just wanted to give a shout out to the Admin Admin podcast. We'll have a link in our show notes. But they, you know, gave us a shout out out of nowhere, because I, I found all this, like, ping back traffic from them. And I was like, what, what is going on? But yeah, it turns out they mentioned us. It was, it was pretty cool. So we will uh, we'll give you a link to them. Check them out. They have a lot more episodes under their belt. I think they release maybe more frequently than we do, too. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm pretty they, sure. They, I'm sorry? Uh, I was just going to say, it seems like they also, um, if any of you are like Windows server sysadmins, it seems like they talk about that way more than we ever would. Yeah, yeah. You'll... And that's not for like a lack of caring or anything. It's more so just we don't have the experience there. Yeah, we're not Windows admins. We're, we're Linux admins. Um, so that's primarily where we focus. But yeah, they, they've got a much better mix mash um, where they got like one guy who works with Linux and Windows. I think one or two other guys who work primarily with Windows. So pretty cool stuff. Hey, Jathan. Yep. You know what sucks? Yeah, no. SSL? What? True story, SSL does suck. Uh, so there was yet another uh, downgrade attack mentioned for the SSL TLS suite yesterday, I think. We're recording on May the 21st, so... Oh, very interesting. I'm sorry. Apparently my browser is vulnerable, so I'm kind of scared now. Oh, no, like every, pretty much every browser is at this point currently. So it's weakdh.org. I don't think it has like a really fancy schmancy name. Just the logjam attack. Oh, log, right. They call it the logjam. But that's not that fancy. I mean, it's not freak. It's not like yeah. Venom is that the Venom the... was the one. Oh, we should have stuck Venom on the list. I talked about Venom in the solo episode. Eh, well, didn't listen yet. Or maybe the Sorry. episode before that. Yeah, you, yes. you were phased out. I already talked about it. <laughs> I was phased out. You were phased out. You were just zoned out, man. So you know, I'll, I'll, as always, I'll put up the CVE so you can check it out yourself. But it's a flaw in the Diffie Hellman key exchange part of TLS, uh, which basically lets a server and a client securely agree on, supposedly securely agree on an encryption pattern, an encryption algorithm, basically. That's oversimplifying it, as I always do, but, you know, that's that's the baseline simplicity of it. And I think as long as you're using a certain type of Diffie-Hellman, so elliptical curve, I think, is okay. Some other ones are, are weak. So, I mean, it's kind of hit or miss, as to whether whether you're vulnerable or not. Currently, like all browsers are, most browsers are maybe, Diffie-Hellman is generally a, a good thing to have because it can 
it's designed to prevent things like man in the middle attacks but now we've got a downgrade attack to to worry about so it sort of was self-defeating in this case well, it pretty much still um makes man in the middle possible right yeah in a sense. i didn't read a whole lot about it but yeah I, I think it does open up to man in the middle i mean it, it still does a, a pretty decent job i use 496 bit diffie hellman for all my keys i generate right primarily the weakness is in like sort of quasi pre-generated diffie hellmans mm-hmm. which is how a lot of like applica- like network application hardware ships um so like routers and stuff like that if you have 512 bit diffie hellman it's considered trivial to to crack uh 1024 is considered uh you know maybe government level large organization able should be able to crack it uh they're saying that 2048 bits 2048 bits and up are considered relatively secure so as long as you a generate your own diffie hellman parameters and b are using 4096 or maybe even 2048 you should be okay so excuse me for not knowing this but i just looked and didn't see anything initially but is um is openvpn affected by this I, I don't think so. I tweeted them last night and they haven't gotten back to me. But from what I think, so OpenVPN community, at the very least, like the, the open source version, where right. you set it all up yourself and everything, I'm like maybe 90% certain that it's not vulnerable as long as, you know, one, you generated the Diffie-Hellman parameters, which is optional, and two, you you met the two guidelines I, I outlined. You know, you, you used a, a strong length of bits and everything, strong number of right. bits. So, yeah, I mean, it, I know that the community version doesn't ship with any sort of pre-bundled Diffie-Hellman, so I hesitate to say it, but it should be safe. I don't have any definite word on that or not. As for OpenVPN AS or whatever it's called, like Access Server, I think, uh, the basically the enterprise-slash-corporate version, where it's it's paid, you get a nice web GUI and all that crap, uh, that... I have no idea. I haven't touched right. that in about two years, so I don't know how they're shipping Diffie Hellman. Yeah, I'm just looking now. My key is 2048. Yeah, you you should be all right. I mean, I 2048 is still a pretty pretty good length, pretty good size. Do you notice a real speed difference using uh, like a 4096? <sighs> you know, I mean, it has more to do when you like with like how you first initially connect. So, right. um, right. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, cause like already for me, it kind of like, you see that it takes a little while to connect and negotiate really the connection. I mean, a little bit, maybe I'm, I'm not a... saying it's like, Oh, I'm sitting here waiting for my VPN. Please excuse me. <laughs> but, but I mean, you can watch it go through the process. And if you have like verbosity turned on with open VPN and you know, it kind of does take some time. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I maybe I'm a spoiled American, but in the the current landscape of internet access, at least in the US, where just about everything's quote unquote high speed, you know, high bandwidth, then broadband and up basically, you know, it, it's not really noticeable all that much. If you can wait an extra two seconds, it's it's totally worth it. The part where you're gonna sink a lot of time in is waiting for the actual keys to be generated. Yeah, yeah. but that's not bad either. Yeah, that's, that's just one time. So. I mean, yeah, it's one time, and for what you're getting out of running your own VPN and routing traffic over it, it's totally worth it in my book. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's depending on the machine you run it on, most, I'd say like on a, a standard Linode, it's done in maybe, oh, I don't know, two minutes, three minutes, something like that. I think it's less than that. Honestly. For for 2048. I don't know the benchmark for 4096, but it, it it's... It's less than five minutes. Yeah, maybe. 
I haven't I haven't timed it, so I don't know the benchmarks. But yeah, about five minutes or less sounds sounds about right. But that that segues nicely into uh, you know speaking of elliptical turd elliptical curve elliptical turds. No, elip- I said elliptical turve, T-U-R-V-E. Ah, uh, okay, elliptical turve. It's That's still not a word, word, but, you know. I keep meaning to talk about this, and I can't remember if I did or not. I, th- I feel like I may have mentioned it or linked it in the show notes, but there's a really handy guide out there, and I'm going to maybe mirror it just in case, but there's a there's a guide out there to harden your SSH. So you, you you may use, like, pub key authentication already. That's fine and dandy. That's great. Like, to do any less would be just insanity. But there is some current concern that the NSA maybe potentially have a backdoor, you know, or not necessarily backdoor, but, like, if your keys are weak, they may have already gained access and then your whole system's trojaned and all sorts of, all sorts of a mess. Oh, remind me to talk about Putty, by the way. Okay. So as a result of that, you know, some guy was like, how could I make, like, how can I make SSH stronger? So he put together a really short little guide. It's really easy reading. He lists all the specific commands you need to run and everything. It does take some time to regenerate the, the key modulize and everything. Modulies? Moduli? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Moduli? I'm, I'm pretty sure the singular form is modulus or modulus. So I, I don't know. It's, it's basically the thing that controls how SSH keys are generated. Right. So you need to regenerate those in in the process of this, and that takes a fair bit of time. But you know, again, if you've got the CPU horsepower to do it and everything, it's not a that big a deal. It's a great Saturday project or whatever. So we'll we'll post a link to that. But I I did want to post that up just so you are aware of it and know to look for it. Do you do it? I did it on one machine already. Okay. And the process went pretty swimmingly. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be pushing that out to my other machines soon. Swimming as swimmingly as it can be for regenerating all those algorithms and everything. I don't know. Oh, right, right. Putty. I know. Oh, yeah, you wanted to touch on Putty. Yeah, so this isn't in the topic list, but it's it's something I did want to mention because it came out like within the past day or two. Um, there is a Trojan version of Putty going around. Oh. Yeah. So That's really shitty. So there's... there. so many people aren't going to know any better. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I would, I would hope they know better if they're Linux admins, but <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, they it was discovered in the wild, so it, it has been found in the wild. But luckily, the official distribution, I, and you know, I'll post a link to the the project's page. If you as long as you download it from the page, you should be okay. It's just like third party distribution that was Trojan, and he also offers like MD5 sums and GPG sign uh, signatures of like all the files he distributes, which is what we do too. You know, because it's. Like, in the case of this, people can know that, like, okay, this is a safe version of this file, you know? It's right. it's not just to know that it's it's coming from the right source. It's to know that, like, everything's kosher, you know? And that's kind of why I do it. Like, if we were ever to be rooted, I, I hope not, but if we were ever to be rooted, um, you would have different... If, if someone tried to, de- to Trojan, if they discovered some kind of, like, binary encapsulation that they could exploit MP the MP3 codec with or something... And they trojaned one of our episodes. And, you know, this may sound like horseshit, but we we thought that about SSL being weak. Broken? Yeah, broken, like, no more than, like, two years ago. So it could happen, it could not happen, whatever. But if it does happen, you know that you can have proper, a proper way of checking against those to make sure it's it's the right, uh, the right sum. Definitely, yep. And I think I'm going to be trying to mirror our wiki somewhere, maybe 
if I can manage to do it at archive.org, so you can have like a an outside trusted third party, you know, corroborate, corroborate, corroborate. Is that the word? Mm, confirm. We'll just go with confirm. Uh, confirm those checksums and everything. So I'll be doing that in the future. But yeah, watch out, watch out for your putty. We'll post a link to uh to check. I just posted it. Yeah, I, I saw that in IRC. So <laughs> speaking of IRC, that's another good segue. Yeah, this is going really well. Um, so next topic that we wanted to talk about was chat and uh, like our preferred chat clients, different protocols over which to chat, I guess. Mm. So I'm going to just take this and say right now, actually, I don't know if this is true anymore. I think that we both still use IRSSI for uh, IRC, though, right? I thought it was pronounced IRSI. I've always just said IRSSI. We'll post a link. Y- you can... Is it IRSI? You can... I, I feel like it is. I feel like every time I've heard it, it's pronounced. This is like literally every time you go to, um, oh God, it is. Oh, it is? Finnish pronunciation. I think that this key here says Ursi. Well, if it doesn't like spell it out syllabically, then yeah, it's Ursi. Well, I'm looking for the English. Uh... Anyway. Anyways, so that's an IRC client. It's a lot like WeChat or uh, BitchX, if any of you have used either of those, only I found it to be a lot more powerful and a lot cleaner. It's really extensible. Yeah, it's super cool. And you can upgrade the binary without having to disconnect. So you can run system updates and not worry about like... It's 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 a really cool uh, client. There's like tons of extensions for it. There's spell check if you want to do that. There's plenty of themes already out there, but you can also roll your own super easily. Mm-hmm. The config file for it is stored in your home directory, so every user can have their own, and it just... I don't even like, I don't even use uh, the config file anymore. I do it all through, like, the configuration commands. Oh, yeah, but, I mean, it still dumps it in. Oh, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's so, still I mean, I back that up so that if I ever roll a new machine, I just put it in my home directory, and I don't have to reconfigure everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's got really... It's got pretty rad logging, pretty extensive logging. It's yeah. got... And there's way... You know it has a built-in proxy? Yes, I knew that too. Yeah. Um, and it's written in Perl. Written in Perl, yeah. So if you are fluent in Perl and you want to write an extension on your own or whatever... Or edit the source, easy. yeah. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's a very cool program for IRC. But, you know, it's it's IRC. Now, you can run something like Beetlebee or something to connect your IRC to other chat protocols. But, I don't know, we'll talk about that more in a second, I think. Yeah. Um, so the cart. what else do we have here? Um, in the show notes, we've got um, Jabber and XMPP, which... I don't want to talk about that yet. We're going to okay, hold off kidding. on that. Um, okay. Just kidding. Did you say it? Well, yeah, I said just kidding. Oh, no, I mean, no, no. If, you're, if you're not talking about it, then I, no, I'm not, I'm not either. Uh, no, well, I'm we not. will. We will. Just in a couple seconds. Um, I, I wanted to mention some basically dead and or dying and or alternative chat protocols. So does anyone remember AIM? AOL yeah, Instant I Messenger? I love AIM. Yeah. I mean, it's still around, by the way. I'm pretty sure they use uh, some new... I, I think they have may have adopted XMPP, but I'm not sure. They used to, at the very least, use a protocol called Oscar. And you, the, what's really cool is you can find, like, Oscar daemons in your distro's repository. So you can run your own AIM chat server, basically. You gotta finagle around with the client to get it to, to connect right. But, you know, I mean, it's it's doable, and that's the important part. But Oscar as a protocol kind of sucks. You know, it's, it's showing its age. It's not very easy on resources or things like that. So it's, it's kind of going away. Then there was ICQ. Did you ever get into ICQ? I kind of tried, but I didn't know anybody else that was on it, so it was like, eh, this is stupid. I was on it, but we didn't know each other back when I was using no, it. Not so, that. but that's also Oscar. 
Yeah, that's correct. That is also Oscar. And ICQ implemented Oscar in a little bit of a better way. It was eventually bought by AOL. Yes. Uh, so according to Wikipedia, they both still use Oscar. Okay. But I, I didn't look at when the last update was. I closed it because I was like, ah, I don't care. Yeah, I, <laughs> nobody cares. It really doesn't matter. Nobody uses ICQ or, uh, or AIM anymore, really. I did have to use AIM to communicate with one of our data centers at a previous job. Communicate with the texts there, but that was an interesting experience. So that, yeah, ICQ kind of faded into memory, but I know a lot of people are listening and we're like, oh man, ICQ, I remember ICQ. That was awesome. Yeah, I remember ICQ too. You're not alone. I mostly use it with like people in Europe. What else was there? Well, back in the day you had MSN Messenger, which transitioned into... I don't even know now. No, I think it's it's just incorporated on Microsoft Live. Yeah. I don't know what it's like called, though, now. I'm sure it's got some fancy name. You had Yahoo Messenger. Yep, you had Yahoo Messenger. I remember... There's one more that I feel like I'm trying to think of right now. I don't know. I know a bunch of the other ones, like QQ is big in China right now. Skype. Yeah. Skype's big now. Oh my gosh, what's the one that I'm thinking of? Do you remember anything about it? No, not at all. Do you know if it supported offline messaging? It did not, for sure. Okay. Because Yahoo Messenger did. Yeah, it did. Are you thinking about the uh, the Microsoft, like, comic chat or whatever it was? No. You know, honestly, it could just be, like, in my head. Maybe there was nothing. Okay. Yeah, so Microsoft did uh, also have, like, a, a comic chat where there were, like, templates and you could... Uh... It was weird. It was basically, like, the first avatar chat, but it didn't really catch on at all. I'm sure you can find information about it on archive.org, though. Maybe even, like, a client or find someone running a server. Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's been a lot of chat protocols over the years. There's a couple now. I'd say the big big ones now are probably Facebook Messenger, which is weird. Google Hangouts is, like... Google Hangouts is maybe, like, a... It's a minor player. Yeah, it's a minor player, but it, it you shouldn't discount it, because it is used fairly much. I know there's I mean, others. Skype... TeamSpeak, stuff like that. Yeah. That we use for like gaming purposes. TeamSpeak, Ventrilo, Bumble, which is what we're talking about. But I don't I don't think that really counts because it's that's kind of roll your own private VoIP chat. That's not really like a, a text chat. Well, I mean you've still got IRC for like open source projects. IRC, and stuff duh. Like that. Yeah, we we've uh we do run IRC. There was one that was on the tip of my tongue. Nope, it's gone. iChat. I no, that's a client, dude. No, I'm pretty sure that it's also a proprietary protocol. Maybe it's like a transport protocol, but I don't I don't think it's an actual chat protocol. Uh, it is Lyft, uh, well, software and protocols. I don't know. Uh, I just know it's like I a... I thought that they bought some information from um, from AOL, actually, to develop it. Um, Maybe they bought rights to use the trademark or something? Because I know you can't use it as an AIM client, but... Really? iChat? I yeah. Oh, right, right. The desktop thing, not on your phone, really. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't have an iPhone, so I don't know that much. Um... Oh, yeah, that, so originally, like, chat was just text only. ICQ kind of broke the barrier. I think they were the first, maybe the very first offer audio chat. I'm not sure. I know Yahoo Messenger later offered it. But, you know, now we've got things like WeChat and WhatsApp, all these, like, uh, mobile phone apps designed around chatting. Of course, there's SMS and MMS. There's one worth mentioning. It's called... um... Whisper? No, Wicked? Is that what it is? Maybe it is Whisper. It's like the encrypted one. Yeah, Whisper. Whispers. Well, it's Whisper Systems, and they've got some kind of... I think their their actual chat protocol or program is named something different. We'll put it in the show notes, of course. Wicked, I think, is a... Wicked is a two-factor manager. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's the default in SUSE, I think. 
but it's also the uh it's also a two-factor authentication platform i'm sure it's a lot of other things too but that's just off the top of my head right so we wanted to we would this is where we've been this is kind of where we're at now but super underestimated is xmpp as it's commonly known which isn't correct because it's the proprietary version of it but jabber you and i have played around with it a fair bit it's so cool it's i wish we could just kill irc with it it's i it's not gonna happen but i know you know i mean it's it it definitely is really cool Uh, it's very extensible the thing is is everything is just xml yeah yeah so so. if you can somehow use that to interface with like anything else i mean you can use xmpp to your advantage i guess and it does have the added advantage so everything else like irc for instance ssl was an afterthought it was kind of patched in and now became a standard xmpp was designed to support encrypted transport not only that but it also supports some really really cool things like uh it was drafted but uh abandoned to have and i think i mentioned this before like built-in support for for uh, pgp open pgp that did drop, but there are client-side plugins you can use, kind of like OTR off the record, that let you use GPG through through XMPP, which is freaking awesome. But yeah, like Jason said, it's all XML, XML streams. And then there's extra, I don't know, I guess extensibilities you can add to it through like, for instance, like uh, LibJingle. Uh, you can add video and audio conferencing. You can add in... LDAP authentication. You can add, you can add a lot of really cool stuff. I personally prefer eJabberD. I found it to be the most expansive, the easiest to configure, yet still, you know, the most flexible within that ease. There's some other ones like OpenFire and stuff, but they, I, I just don't like them because they're like, oh, one click install, and they don't, I don't like the install they do so i have no way of changing that but yeah i'm a big fan of ejabberd i don't know i mean that's i would love to see the world use more xmpp i just think that there's a lot more options for it and just the fact that you can i mean there's so many clients for it and so many plugins you can use for those clients for otr messaging yeah and pgp and stuff like that it's a fully open protocol you know so yeah and so i think that makes it way better um and it supports chat rooms it supports offline messaging which you know something like irc does not that's that's true unless you've got a bot to handle it for you but even then that's not that's not by the protocol that's that's an external service but just imagine like for us like we have our irc channel for for this podcast and we have people that occasionally wander in but we're not there necessarily to talk to them every single time that they happen to to show up Mm -hmm. so um you know at least if we had jabber they could leave a message and we could come back and be like oh look this person said that yeah but most people don't use jabber i know but i'm just saying or xmpp but yeah yeah we we should stop doing that. but but it can it can um it can it it can do some other really stuff really cool stuff it can use transports so like you can conject connect your jabber server to an irc channel or an aim server or you know like you can you can talk cross cross protocol and that's kind of incorporated into the drafting standard of xmpp so and you can also talk to people who are on different xmpp right yeah so it's a it's a lot closer to email in that sense it's like email chat you know it's really cool you used to without a lot of difficult without a lot of difficulty be able to talk to gtalk users from your own xmpp (sighs) server you, That's the biggest thing that Google has done in like the last five years that pissed me off. It's still getting rid of XMPP. No, no, it's still there. They still use it. It still kind of sort of works. It's just not pretty at all. Yeah. And the other thing that makes me mad, though, is um, you can't use Google Hangouts as an XMPP client, like the, the app. Right. The, and before you could do that. Right. You could. Yeah. 
their their Google Talk app or whatever it was called then. Yeah, uh, Google Talk, yeah, G Talk or whatever. Yeah, that that's true. Facebook, I think, was or is using XMPP as well. Still is, as far as I know, because you can connect to it with a. Uh, and a lot of people don't know this, but you can connect to Facebook chat with like a client of your choice. There you, you don't go. have to use it from the web. There you go. So it looks like that's still using XMPP. For an actual client, I tend to use Pigeon just because it's got all the protocols I, I like, except for IRC. I like I like IRC for IRC um, just because I like running in that persistent session. If I want a persistent session with Pigeon, uh, I just use Finch, which is like a NCurses version of Pigeon. But yeah, Pigeon supports XMPP pretty well. There's one I had. To, it, it, it's, it's a little bit shady here and there. Um, so I usually use like a dedicated Jabber uh, XMPP client in addition to it. I know, I know. It's bad. Yeah, and we also talked about... Um, Zabber? Zabber, there it yeah. is. That was a really good one for Android that we played around with a fair amount. Yeah. The two of us. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a mobile app, so you gotta set your expectations a little bit lower from that of, like, a, a desktop client. But it's still, it, for what it is, it's pretty awesome. It's, it's pretty, pretty good as a, a, a XMPP client. And it even supports um, encryption, right? What kind? I don't remember, but didn't we play with that? Or maybe it was just... Um, I don't know. It did have, like, you could basically... Um, I don't know. There were just, like, multiple ways of verifying who you were talking to. So you could throw up, like, a password, basically, and if the other person could match that, then it's like, oh, you're talking to somebody that you know is them. Oh, that's OTR. Yeah, so I guess that yes. has OTR support, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's pretty much it. You know, just about every chat protocol out there now supports... SSL, or at least the open ones, port SSL or TLS or whatever. I like XMPP because it lets you go even further beyond that by encrypting, like, transactionally, like, between person-to-person -person encryption through GPG or OTR or whatever. Generally, that's that's it. I, haven't, I don't have anything else more to talk about this topic to you. Nope, I think that's about it. Um, we don't currently have an XMPP server, neither of us, I don't think. I think I might still have the Project Free one up, actually. Oh, well. <laughs> Running in, in some case, dark corner of the internet. Um, but if, you, if you're if you interested in XMPP, hop in our IRC channel. We'd be happy to talk about it some more. And if there was some real interest in us setting up a, a front-facing server, I think we could probably look into that, right? Yeah, I mean, I could even uh, open registration. So if you want an at sysadministrivia.com XMPP address or JID, Jabber ID, as they're called. Yeah, I mean, if, if there's interest in that, I'll, I'll definitely set that up. Next topic, uh, we're talking about different file systems. That's what it says on our topic. Yeah, this is different file systems. So we added this to the topic list, I don't know, like a month ago, maybe. Yeah, I kind of forgot. I think I might have added this actually. Well, it's it's good, and it's it's good that we kind of by happenstance came across this this week too, because yesterday, pretty sure it was yesterday, Pharonix, and then you know Slashdot picked up on it. It was it was discovered May eighteenth, so it was, it was recent. Ran an article about how there is with the new Linux four point branch kernel. I think starting with four point zero point two, some say four point zero point three, some say it's patched already in four zero four, which is what I'm running. We'll see, but a Apparently there's a bug with ext4 and software raid zero yes and i don't i actually saw this and i don't think we talked about it before right now um, well why would it we? oh yeah oh you mean between you and i yeah yeah but i mean i actually was reading it and i was like oh we should stick this on the topic list and then i don't think i sent it to you yeah but it's good because i i wanted to talk about it anyways i got freaked the crap out when i first read that because my desktop running a 4.0 kernel on software raid it was on raid it's on RAID 1, but not too much was known about it a couple days ago. They were just pretty sure that they had 
had it narrowed down to software RAID and Linux 4.0 and EXT4, which is also what I use. So I was crapping my pants. I upgraded to 404 immediately. I haven't seen any corruption yet. So fingers crossed. But, you know, I mean, supposedly, like, if you're going to hit it, you're going to notice really quick. Like right. right after a reboot, and I I haven't I haven't seen anything like that. So yeah, just make sure you're patched to the newest kernel for your production systems. Make sure you're not using 4.0 in them. Make sure you're still using like the 3.x branch for your production, and you should be okay. I mean, I, they are obviously aware of it. It got slash dotted, so if there's if there isn't a patch fix, uh, a, it, it'll happen really. Yeah, soon. yeah. It's and the good news is attention. you won't even have to reboot to apply it. <laughs> well. I think maybe. I think the this distros, one you might actually have to. Yeah, well, maybe even not. But I think the distros are still trying to figure out how to implement that because I know that when I upgraded the the kernel in Arch, it didn't uh, it didn't change the change the kernel version live yet. Oh, so really? uh, not yet. But I mean, I I sure once the distro figures out how to do it, Arch is going to be one of the first. You know, because they're bleeding edge like that. So it looks like it's possible now, but you need to do maybe some extra steps or something. I don't know. I'll pay more attention to it later. But yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, that anyway, ext4 was born from uh, ext3, which was stable for a long time, and that came from ext2, which is a continuation of the ext1 file system type. We're not going to go all the way back to ext1, right? No. I mean, it hasn't been used since like the early '90s. But for sake of argument here, like this entire ext line is basically more or less been the the flagship linux file system type it's what is typically shipped by default by most distros for new installs it's supported in kernel you like it's got a lot of testing against it ironically i know because we just talked about a bug but you know ignore that for now and it's a pretty good all-around file system especially ext4 i'm i'm really liking ext4 yeah i've had a good experience with it there are some people when it first came out that were like very shy about switching right but, but i feel but like that's because i did really quickly and i was just like uh eh, not that bad to be fair that's because ext3s was in use and, and stable for years you know so like it was it was kind of a i understand people's nervousness about it but it's ext4 is stable now there are some lesser known ones like windows uses well dos used fat fat 12 i think it first used and then fat 16 and fat 32 fat 32 and like the early versions of windows and then ntfs and now i think there's like four or five generations in uh versions in of ntfs that's being used but it's it's basically all rehashing of the same file system now for windows mac Mac OS X had, uh, they started out, like, pre-Intel Macs were using something. I don't know. I want to say, like, maybe Acorn file system or something weird like that. But eventually they came up with their, their HFS, which is, ha, what's, what's, I don't know what HFS is. Something. It, it means something. HFS, hierarchical, hierarchical. Hierarchical. Yeah. Uh, that word. File system. Yeah. Okay. And that became that now in present versions of Mac OS X, that's a uh, HFS plus. Right. Yeah. Which you can mount and write to in Linux. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a step up, I think. Yeah. I haven't had any trouble with like severe fragmentation or anything on any of my Macs. So I think they actually do a pretty good job. And I'm not saying that's all the file system, but yeah. Have you, have but, you had a different experience? Well, not really, but it's such it's a super simple file system. It's kind of slow, you know. It's and if if it breaks, there's not a whole lot you can do to fix it. It's not a very robust file system. But yeah, you know, for Mac, whatever it works, I guess there is 
the FFS fast file system. I think early BSD versions use that. Now I think there's maybe an FFS plus. Um, there's JFFS, which is something or other something something file system. There's Riser. There's Riser and Riser Four. Yeah, Riser, Riser and Riser. Riser. 4. The original author of Riser, Hans Riser, is he in jail now? I have no idea. Man. He was he was accused of killing his wife. Oh, wow. All right. So this is going to sound super. Yeah, he's a, he's a criminal. Okay. Considering he's in jail, I don't feel that bad saying this, but he kind of looks like he would kill his wife. Oh, dude, he's he's super creepy looking. Yeah, he really is. I can't remember if he was found guilty or not and, and sentenced, but that was a big to-do about, like, I don't know, five years ago or something. But Riser's pretty good for uh, if you need, like, fast access to lots of tiny little files. Right. That's typically what that's for. Uh, same with XFS. XFS is another one you'll commonly find in Linux and BS, I think maybe BSD systems. Um, that's great for lots of tiny little files. So like for mail servers, you want your mail spooling file system maybe to be XFS. Primarily, I think it was first used for like newsgroup servers and things like that. They would use XFS. Right. I have one more I could throw out there. And, What's that? Uh, well, ZFS for sure. ZFS. And, and that's actually... Versus. I know. I mean, I'm not saying it's great, but it does have its uses. Yeah. A lot of storage boxes run ZFS. Yeah. And that's because of, like, the native compression that Solaris can offer. Yeah. All right. So it does cool stuff. But the bad part is, like, it's pretty much only natively done and done well on Solaris, which is right, slow which nobody as shit. Uses. Yeah. And also, it's not really just a file system. It's kind of like an LVM also. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, that's why people use it in part also but i don't know i'm excited to see butterfs stabilize over the years because i think that could be a reasonably good contender for zfs but it's not it's nowhere near stable yet no not even a little bit have you used it ever i am staying the fuck away from it <laughs> i just wondered if you threw it on like a test box no no i haven't thrown it on a test box yet but i mean it's it's nowhere near stable but they are still working on it there's an arch uh, wiki article on it there's an arch arch wiki article on a lot of things jathan i'm just saying it's pretty impressive that it's in there it is yeah well yeah i mean that's you can do a lot with butterfs right so i mentioned jffs and there's a jffs too those are mainly for flash file systems like old school like compact flash cards like for that stuff there's there's a lot i'm just going to post a link with you know hyperlinks hyper wow listen to me i sound old with uh i'm just going to post a bunch of links to different file systems so you can read about them yourself but i don't even know why we wanted to talk about this but it's good that we did because we got to bring up the ext4 bug yes that is a good thing yeah Oh, and I think it has something to do with trim too. And I do have my my root file system on on uh, SSD, so I, I'm using trim on that. That's a story for a different day. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll link to it, so we don't even need yeah, to talk about it a different day. We'll just let you read we'll the rest of it. it. Call it good. The grisly details. So we've got next on our list is different kinds of open source licenses. Yeah. We we mostly just threw this in there. So in case you weren't too familiar with open source and and what it all entails, the basic idea of open source for something to be considered open source generally it needs to meet the conditions of the osi the open source initiative for kind of like a bonus round it can meet the sff fsf guidelines the freedom software free software foundation and if it meets those it's considered free software so that's what how you can get like free uh free open source software or FOSS software that's when it meets both those conditions but it's it's possible for it to meet one and not the other Usually, if it meets the free software conditions, it'll definitely meet the OSI conditions. The OSI ones, yeah. yeah. It's like they're... the FSF ones are stricter, if you will. Yeah. yeah they're much they're... more specific and 
fine-tuned. Right, exactly. The OSI tends to be a little bit more friendly with businesses, but, you know, that's that's neither here nor there. So some of the most, like, popular licenses for under the OSI are uh, the Apache license, which obviously Apache uses, but you may see some other stuff use it too. I don't know off the top of my head what uses it, but I, I'll, I'll look it up. I know I've seen more than one project that uses it. The BSD3 clause, which is obviously what uh, OpenBSD uses. Some components of FreeBSD use the BSD3. I think, yeah, FreeBSD uses their own. They use the older BSD2 license for most of their stuff yeah 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 uh and these numbers after them are named after the number of clauses they have in them so the bsd3 has three clauses bsd2 has two clauses so on and so forth the gpl is a little bit of a different story the linux kernel is under the gpl for the most part so most of your distribution is under the gpl things like that the gnu core utilities most of them are under gpl different versions the current version is gpl v3 version 3 and it's got a little bit a couple more quirks than version 2 did but it's it's a pretty good license. Uh, GPL is kind of unique in the sense that it sort of encourages wink, wink, nudge, nudge. More like kind of like under legal, actionable, you know, legal condition. Uh, it kind of forces people who modify your code to release it under the same license. The same license, yeah. Right, which is really nice because it kind of protects you. In yeah. Sense. I mean, if you release under the GPL, it's not like anyone's going to be able to take your stuff, modify it, and then just like totally change the definition of what you did in a sense. Yeah, and and it also encourages changes to get pushed upstream. And it's a heated debate. You know, a lot of the BSD users are like, oh, the GPLs, it's like a virus, you know, it's a cancer. And then the GPL supporters are like, well, we're, we're popular for a reason. You know, everything gets pushed back upstream. So we're a lot better, we're a lot better supported than you are and things like that. So it's an ongoing debate. Decide for yourself. I don't really care. Yeah, I don't either. If you're releasing your stuff under any of these licenses, I think it's better than... Oh, than a closed proprietary. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in any case, I'm going to support that. Yeah, yeah. There is a lesser GPL. There's there's some like minor tweaks they made to the GPL to, to meet the LGPL, but that's, uh, you know, that's neither here nor there. It's not too important. And there's lots of comparisons online, just the difference. Yeah, yeah, you that. can find comparisons, absolutely. Um, the MIT license, which is probably the closest thing you can get to a intentional public domain license there's a creative commons 1.0 license which is public domain i don't know and that's that's kind of like i'd I'd say that's closer for like creative works like works of art and literature and things like that but whatever you know that's that's a nuance but yeah the mit license license excuse me the mit license basically says take the code do whatever the fuck you you want with it i'm not responsible for it right have fun um which is very which is very like old school BSD. There's the Mozilla public license, the NPL. I don't know. I'm not too familiar with that one, but my guess would be it's it's more restrictive than probably even the GPL. They're an organization that's super like straight laced and kind of heavy on the hierarchy. So I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look through it. You know, we'll link to these, obviously. Uh, there's the common development and distribution license. I think that's like the actual public domain license, but I'd have to... I'd have to check that again. You know, there's the Eclipse public license. There's a lot of licenses there's a lot of that licenses. are classified as open source. Yeah. So you've got your pick. Find one that you think matches your personal political stance and and your project the best. You know, so it's it's not it's not too important. I just think it's important that people release open source at the end of the day, if you had to pick. Last one. Yeah, this is this is gonna be a, a this is gonna be a big one. Are you ready for this? Yeah, we're gonna try to keep this short though. Mm-mm. No, you want to just go ham with this. I want to. I want to go full on hard. If it means the episode's got to be a little bit long, so be it. Oh man. Okay. Well, we're talking about System D. I'm giving it away right now. Yeah. So System D. 
I, I just realized I never did the... Uh... If you use Debian and you don't anymore because of System D, you're doing it wrong. What? You're doing it wrong. Well, no, I mean, like, they, they there is a Debian fork that's System D list. I know, but that's Liz, so Liz ridiculous. Liz talked about it, yeah. I'm Liz so talked angry. about it. If you need to find it, look for our interview with Liz in the show notes. I, I link to the Debian fork that strips System D out and replaces it with SysV style in its grips. But you know what? I It took me a little bit, and I'm not an astroturfer. I, obviously, I'm not an astroturfer. I'm, I'm sitting here fucking talking to you. I'm not getting paid. I'm not getting paid by Red Hat or anything of the sort. I'm coming to you offering my personal opinion, my experience, and my, my experience with both System D and as a fairly long-time Linux user. I mean, first off, all I want to say is if you haven't given it a chance, just do it. Well... No, 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 no. There's no question about that. You well, it deserves a chance. Let's, it, it does. All right. So it does deserve a chance. I, I agree. There's been a lot of arguments made against it, and I think a lot of them are pretty stupid. When I sat down and I was like, all right, this is new to me. I feel like it's going to suck, but I'll give it a shot anyways, see if I like it. And I did. It turns out I, I um, System D is really growing on me. Well, and you've even written some init scripts now. Unit files, they're called. Okay. Um, but Well, see, I'm an offender now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we'll, I guess we'll just dig right in. So a lot of it is... Yeah, well, in the show notes, I found a, a PC World article, and I'm not saying it's the best, but it talks, um, about some of the criticisms of System D. It talks about what System D does that makes them more than just an init system. Um, it kind of gives a little evaluation of whether or not it's quote-unquote good or bad, but they try to be a little unbiased about it, I guess, which I think is a good thing. I feel like even the title, it's called uh, Meet System D, the Controversial Project Taking Over a Linux Distro Near You. I yeah, feel like even the suggestive. title is kind of not kind of subjective, you know, but whatever. So I'm I'm going to, I do have some defenses I'd like to make in, of System D, and I, I feel like I've heard a lot of the arguments against it, and I'm here to tell you you're wrong. <laughs> so let's get started. So in sort of flat out benefits, that, and nobody's denying this because they can't, you know, it's, it's straight up empirical. It's hella fast. Full stop. It is one of the fastest booting systems I've ever seen. A clean Arch install will, you know, with like no services enabled or anything, because that that all depends on how fast the services in the, themselves come up. But you can get you can get a, a boot in about one to two seconds, and on SSD even faster. And it's it's phenomenal. I love it. That's not obviously the only benefit, but it's a big selling point, especially for on the rare occasion you do need to reboot. It's nice to not have to sit there and wait. Is that the train? Yeah, can you actually hear that? I can. <laughs> yeah, so I just moved, uh, which is why I wasn't around to record last week with Brent. And we have a train not too far from us. So if you hear that, that's a train. It's actually not too bad, though, right? No, it's, it's not bad. I mean, I'll, I'll probably edit subsequent ones out, but I'll leave that in there so you can, so our listeners can get a feel for it. So it's hella fast. Now, it is, it is pretty stable. I haven't had actually any crashes with system d i've had some quirks and those usually result are a result of me not understanding how system d works or something that seems stupid but is actually kind of smart so like if file system check fails it just won't won't boot as in my opinion a system should not boot if a, if a file system check fails it should not boot that's just common sense yeah it means your server's down and it's it's spinning at the uh, at the init but is that better than you know skipping a, a file system check like you know who's to say but and and there you can like disable that and everything and disable blockings you can mask services which is you know prevent them from being spawned and things like that but it tries to start the system 
as quickly and sanely as possible. It tries to get always get like the most baseline startup it can, which is really handy if you expect your system to behave a certain way. Now, what, speaking of the quirks, like it's annoying when it doesn't do that, but that's few and far between at this point. But it point. also has pretty good logging to actually try to determine why. Well, and that's the thing. Currently on my desktop, I'm battling a, a bug where it doesn't actually start the journal oh. <laughs> when it when it boots. I have not run into that myself, so... not. A, I don't think anybody else has. I think it's because I've got such a weird, fucked up partitioning scheme on mine. Like, I, remind me, like, I'm using, like, bind mounts and everything, which is definitely breaking some kind of standard spec. So I'm pretty sure it's my fault, but, you know, it doesn't make it any better, I guess. But yeah, so it is stable, but not without its quirks. Again, though, just as System V is. System V, the System V in its style is decades old at this point, probably. I, I forget when System V was released. You can probably Google that right now while I'm talking. It's been a long time. It's been around for a long time. So it's, it's had, it's still got some quirks, you know? Oh my, initial release, 1983, which was 32 years ago. Yeah, so a couple decades. It's been around for a while. And the and it's still kind of buggy. It's still f- really finicky about some things. You know, you have to write your own scripts. And the only reason there's any sort of standardization between the scripts, you know, some, some kind of core functionality, is because chances are your distro wrote common libraries to, for that. So it's... Not really ideal, but systemd lets you use a lot of utilities and libraries and things like that and functions that are kind of built in. So like writing a quote unquote init script for a, a service under systemd is stupid easy. It's like three or four lines and it, it handles almost anything you could want it to. And if you are really attached to your init scripts, because you may have spent a long time on them or whatever, like you can patch them into systemd. You can fully, you can write a wrapper unit and it can call a systemd, a, a sysv script just fine. Right. So really cool stuff, but it is, you know, you're obviously not going to get some of the benefits like speed or forking management or watchdog management or, or things like that uh, if you don't use a unit file, but whatever. One of the, one of the, um, I guess, naysayers opines is a, it's got a binary journal and yeah sure but that's part of i guess that's part of the price you you pay for for that kind of optimization and that kind of like low overhead on a system and i i mentioned i did have problems with mine that's because i'm doing mine in a really fucked up crazy kind of way generally speaking nine times out of ten the journal works fine yeah, I haven't had any issues with it, and I've used it now on Arch, CentOS 7. Yeah, and it's... it's. And I think that's I think that's it, but still. It's really handy. It, it's very featureful because it's its own daemon, basically, It's and it's incorporated into the... Not incorporated into, but like it's closely compatible, I guess, with the actual init system. You've got... You can do really cool things like start two different log files. You can log the actual boot process. You can log just to RAM, which is really handy for embedded devices or solid state drives or things where you're worried about writes. You can do size limits. So, you know, it's like, say, you know, a lot of the stuff you could do with like log rotate plus rsys log. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like log rotate plus rsys log slash cases log, whatever, slash syslog ng. Yeah. I was going to say, when you use Gentoo, did you use syslog ng? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. Me too. Until I switched to system d but uh yeah so it has like remote journal logging enabled and if you miss your plain text log files you can have it write to both you can have it write to the binary journal and also spit everything back you can just have it like pipe everything to syslog too and it, it it's more than happy to do that for you so you get the benefit of both worlds so it's it's super awesome like that Another argument I hear is that systemd breaks the the Unix quote unquote philosophy of do one thing and do it well. Well, a couple things. First of all, 
not even Unix did that well. So let's not go like idealizing it. Like Unix broke that philosophy all the freaking time. And there's got to be a limit, you know, like you can't have one binary for every single solitary tiny thing. Cat does a lot. CP does a lot. Like MV does a lot. The, our, the tried and true system movies, I don't see anybody like bitching about Netcat. Even its its name proclaims how, use, how multi-useful it is, you know? It's the Swiss Army, the network Swiss Army knife or whatever. And I don't see people complaining about this. There's just a lot of system D hate, and I feel like it boils down to personal, like personal issues and politics, which is fine. Like I think Leonard Pottering's a uh, is that his name? Leonard Pottering? Potting? <laughs> I, I think the guy's name's Leonard Pottering. The guy's like heading the system D project. He's kind of a tool bag, you know. He's a he's a doofus. I'm not a fan of him, but I that doesn't mean I I have to automatically hate System D or anything else he touches, especially since he's not the only one working on it. So I don't know. I mean that's that's how I feel about that. But yeah, so Unix even Unix itself broke broke Unix philosophy. We didn't even have POSIX until RMS supposedly like coined the idea. So don't don't come crying to me that it breaks Unix philosophy. You know, even if Unix was perfect, it wasn't. But even if it was. It still doesn't break Unix philosophy of do one thing and do it well. There are many different systemd binaries. So it's like core utils, right? Just because it comes in one package or one distributed system, that doesn't mean they're all the same thing. There's a lot of different binaries at work there, and they all do different things as per the Unix philosophy. Just because all the binary names start with systemd doesn't mean they all are using the act. They're all the same binary. Right. And that's that is if you want to look at core utils and their dependence on glibc, that's very similar to how systemd works, you know. Right. And you know, there there's another complaint that you can't mix and match between sysv and systemd. You know, systemd's are systemd utilities are interdependent. You can't drop journal d on like a sysv system. Well, uh yeah, you can. But you can drop sysv stuff in systemd just fine. So that's not really, like, it's just because SysV is such a dated system, and it's interdependent too. So many distros have, like, a common library of functions just for the init scripts. And without that, they would have to write every single init script by hand, you know, things like that. And that's that's so stupid. That's a stupid way of doing things. SysMD, all that's available for you. It's, it's part of the actual binary. It's part of the init binary to do that. Right. It's such a more efficient, clean way of doing things. We're, we're closing up here. So if you're a systemd hater, sorry, but, you know, just open your mind a little bit. Open maybe. your mind, try it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I yeah, wasn't yeah, a big fan at first either, but you know what? I kind of prefer it now. It definitely grows on you. You yeah, have to, you have to you give it. You can do everything that you want to do and then some with it. Yeah, you have it's to just give a it change. an honest chance, but give it an open, honest chance. And you may find that you actually end up liking it after a little bit. Totally second. Yeah. I think we were all in that boat to an extent. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's not like a. I've heard people call it like a. What do they call it when when there's when you're like a captor and you end up falling in love with your with your. Uh, you you fall in love with your captor, and I you're captured. Totally don't know the term. Stockholm Stockholm syndrome. People explain like explain exclaim that like system d fans are suffering from stockholm syndrome because a lot of distros are starting to switch to it people said the same thing about udev when when it was switched over from hot plug and cold plug people said the same thing about like i don't know you you take your pick you know like it, it's not that big a deal it will happen again if you don't like it start your own distro or or join one of the ones that are forking because they hate system d whatever and give it a chance before you hate on it for pete's sake just because it's something becomes the majority and and popular and you know maybe you're not used to it but that doesn't mean it's not better 
So I don't know. Totally agree. People say System V scripts are edit scripts are just scripts and they can be edited easily. Uh, well, I mean, System D has the same thing. They're called. You can't you can't compare init scripts to System D binaries because it's it defeats the purpose. It, it would be more accurate to compare like um, the init scripts to the System D unit files, which again, you know, unit files are much more concise. They're more flexible. They've got a common set of functions you can choose from, and and they do support SysV scripts. They're compatible with SysV scripts. So if you want to hold on to your init scripts for for dear life, you you, you can. can do that. Yeah. Whatever. Do your own thing. I think this might be our longest episode yet, aside from the interview. Yeah. So this is my last point. I I just want to close up with this point that having the choice between different init systems is good. I always think choice is a good thing. I will never say it's not. However, sometimes it is. If you'll forgive the expression, more good to have a standard that can be relied upon. So, if everyone that was trying to like fork Debian at this point just worked to integrate System D in a more seamless way and and support it, mm-hmm. if they focused that energy, it would be so much more positive than them forking a great distribution and creating such a divide within the community. Yeah, and you know, like within two years, that distro is going to be dead or lagging behind at the very least. Because nobody's going to just break off. I mean, that's not true because obviously some people are, but nobody's going to just be like, well, we're done with Debian completely or. Well, and that's the thing. Debian's got thousands of contributors. Right. And they're not all about to leave just because they adopted system D. Yeah. And they shouldn't. They'll get like maybe like 200, 300 users tops. And and there's multiple. And this is just Debian. This is not counting like CentOS or Gentoo or all, whatever or Arch, all the other ones. Like Debian has multiple non-system D forks so that even splinters yeah, it down. More, fragmentation, more Yeah, it's more fragmentation. Will. Yeah. And that, this has happened across every distro that is or has switched to uh, system, system D. D. Yep. Pretty much. So get your heads out of your asses. Give it a shot. If you don't like it, that's fine. You don't really have to use it. Yeah. But just know that you're causing a problem. This is what happened with Upstart. Upstart was supposed to be good. It sucked because it just it couldn't be supported. It did not have it didn't have the infrastructure behind it. You know, it was just basically Ubuntu at that point maintaining it. Totally agree. And they had they had limited resources. They didn't have a, a dedicated team they could rely on upstream to handle it. Right. System D is backed by freedesktop.org. Do you know how fucking expensive those guys are? That's huge. They're That's huge. A huge thing. They're huge. They handle so much. They handle GTK. They handle um I don't know. I'll, I'll have to list them. You you will be surprised. Like a lot of stuff is handled by freedesktop.org. So the fact that they have that infrastructure behind them is a boon. And it means distros don't have to distro devs have the burden taken off of them. They don't have to focus on maintaining this init system. Right, exactly. Because there's a large organization dedicated to it. Totally. Which is which is why I think ultimately all the forks will fail. It's just, it's too much work for a splintered group of people to, to maintain and keep up with. Yeah, I think so. And it's not worth it. It's, it's not worth it, no. I don't think so. I don't know. I think that's it. Yep, I think so. This has been a long one. I'm sorry. That's it's all right. It'll edit down. It'll probably be like maybe 50, 55 minutes or so. Yeah, we'll be all right. We'll be all right. Y'all don't mind, right? I say that expecting an answer. And <laughs> not only is it like a one way conversation, but also recorded in advance. So we'll see. Oh, did I tell you I uh, I got some water on my laptop keyboard today? No, did you break it? Uh, no, it, it did it short circuit as far as I can tell. But the some of the keys are acting wonky. So I'm drying it out right now. Yeah, well, good luck. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> this is Brent. I'm Jonathan. And this has been Sysadmin's Trivia. See you next time.